Hi, I'm Rajorshi Dash and you're listening to Queerness and Storytelling in India. So today I have with me a professor, a writer who perhaps needs no introduction. I would still introduce her for those who may not be familiar with her works or who may have just read one or two of those essays either in academic platforms or in more popular books like Same-Sex Love in India. Ruth Vanita was educated entirely in India, taught at Delhi University for 20 years and later at the University of Montana. She divides her time between Gurgaon and Montana. She was the co-founder of Manushi, India's first nationwide feminist magazine and volunteered as the co-editor for 13 years. She has published many books, including Safa and the Virgin Mary, Same-Sex Love, and the English Literary Imagination, A Play of Light, Selected Poems, Love's Right, Same-Sex Marriage in India, Gender, Sex, and the City, Urdu Rekti Poetry in India, 1780 to 1870, and Dancing with the Nation's Courtesans in Bombay Cinema. She co-edited the path-breaking Same-Sex Love in India, a literary history in 2000. She has published over 70 scholarly articles and translated several works of fiction and poetry from Hindi and Urdu, most recently Mahadevi Verma's Mera Parivar as My Family. Her first novel, Memory of Light, appeared from Penguin in 2020. Her more recent work is The Dharma of Justice in the Sanskrit epics, Debates in Gender, Varna and Species. Her second book of poems, The Broken Rainbow, will appear this year, and she has just completed a second novel. That's quite a over. Uh, thank you so much for agreeing uh, to this interview. Sure. Thank you for asking. So I'll just start with, you know, the book that perhaps is one of the sort of the pioneering sort of texts when it comes to queer studies in India, and also perhaps queer studies in general. Uh, same-Sex Love in India, which you co-edited uh, with Salim Kidbay, who sadly passed away recently. Uh, I'm keen to understand uh, how this book was conceptualized, as I understand that it focuses on stories. And I, I think I read it for the first time in 2012, if I'm not mistaken, when I was still in my MA, Calcutta University. Uh, so what is it like? Why did you specifically rely on stories? And I, when I say stories, it's not just written, right? It's both oral, written, and so many different uh, languages. So what was it that made you feel that stories would be a good way to reach out to, you know, a lot of people and reclaim notions of love? No, first of all, it's not stories at all. It's a, it's a collection of extracts from texts written over a period of 2000 years. And there's no oral, there's no oral stories. It's all written texts in about 15 languages over a period of more than 2000 years. And these are not just stories. There's nonfiction, there is religious narrative, there is uh, letters, there are poems, there are, but it's all published, uh, written and published. Uh, there are poems, there are letters, there's uh, fiction, 
So it's a variety of genres um, that it is. And the reason we did it was because both of us were educated uh, in India and the subject of same-sex sexuality was never mentioned in the classroom, not even when we were studying, like, obviously, text by obviously authors who would now we would call gay, like, say, E.M. Foster, or the text was about love between two men, like Shakespeare's sonnets. So uh, we wanted to find out what, of course, a lot of considerable work had been done in, on Western literature, and we wanted to find out what there was in Indian literature and to, we hardly knew anything. So we sat down and wrote, uh, uh, both he and I had separately been collecting uh, Indian newspaper and magazine clippings for since 1980 or so, uh, which anything that mentioned same-sex sexuality at all. So we had big collections. And then we sort of wrote down the text that we knew, and we knew hardly anything. We knew, of course, the Kama Sutra, though we hadn't read it, but we knew that. We knew Firak Gurakpuri, and we knew Amrita, uh, sorry, sorry, what's her name? Uh, Painter, his name has gone out of my head. Uh, um, Amrita Shegil. And that's pretty much all. So then we had to basically educate ourselves. We, we He was mainly in charge of the sort of the Persian tradition, and I was mainly in charge of the Sanskrit and Sanskritic, all the languages that descend from Sanskrit tradition. We did not know South Indian languages personally, so we had to consult others and try to find materials in South, other languages. And of course, we didn't find materials in all Indian languages but only in about 15 of them. Uh, and uh, then we got, we either, what we could translate, we did ourselves, what we couldn't, we got uh, asked other people to translate. Uh, we selected extracts and it required a huge amount of reading. And so it was a tremendous education for me. I read the whole Mahabharata, the, all the Purans um, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so it was an attempt to sort of find what there was in history. In, in, and of course, everything we have in history is what is written, the oral history, you know, is only for living people, those living people, right? That before you had tape reporters. So um, it, it was an attempt to see, we knew that it must exist in Indian literature, we just didn't know where. So it was an attempt to educate ourselves. And after that, it was an attempt to sort of show, to counter this modern myth that homosexuality is something imported from the West. And I think that we have, we and other work later has succeeded largely in doing this, even though some people still may have that view. It is being, it is now, uh, has been considerably, um, uh, to some extent, overcome. The idea that homosexuality is an import from the West, it's a modern Western idea. So that's what we wanted to demonstrate, that no, it has been discussed in India for at least the last 2000 years or more. And it has always been known. Also, it had never been unspeakable in India. It was uh, unlike in the West where it had become unspeakable. It was called the crime not to be named among Christians. Uh, in India, that was never the case. It was talked about in a variety of registers, not always approving. So everything from celebrating to mildly disapproving, there was a whole range of spectrum of opinion. Uh, but yeah, that was what we were trying to do. Mm -hmm. And so would you say like this was also like in a way to shape a kind of Indianness, like something which is like your in a way it also shapes kind of your love for the country, the the heritage, the culture. Like in, in a way it's becomes patriotic in a way to kind of reclaim certain uh, narratives, like you said, not necessarily stories, but different kinds of genres, narrative, and put them, frame them as same-sex love. You could put it like that. Um, it certainly, as I said, was an education for me. It was, it, and it's still, and then my research thereafter, all my books thereafter, with many of which built on this early work, um, really revealed to me the sort of the range, the miraculous and absolutely wonderful range of Indian uh, literature, which is so vast and so complex and so um, sort of, so full of dialogue, really. My latest book is on the epics and the epics are so full of dialogue where people from all uh, 
jatis, varnas, uh, classes, uh, genders, etc., debate and dialogue with each other, both men and women, and so on. So uh, it was a revelation to me. You know, I had I didn't know uh, about. So it, it was a revelation to me what uh, our history and our literature uh, contains. I mean, you of course said that all of this was sort of already published, at least in some forms. What is it? Was it also true for uh, Rekti poetry? Because I know this is one of the areas that you have researched extensively. No, I was talking only about that book, Same Sex Love in India. Yeah, in oh. the case of Rekti, yeah, the poetry was not only very little of the poetry was published. Much of it was in manuscript form. I had to go to libraries. I went to the Rampur Library. I went to the British Library and copied out in the Rampur Library. I copied out of manuscripts. Uh, so. Some of it was published, but uh, much of it was not. And even what was published was completely out of print and unavailable. And some of it was only in manuscript form, one of the manuscripts, is, and much of it is totally lost. So uh, one manuscript, for example, there's a poet called Nisbet, where um, he was a court poet, so a very well-known poet at the time, but the poetry was barely available, just a few verses quoted in anthologies. And then somebody whom I know in fa- uh, Pakistan happened, Mehmood Faruqi, I think he happened to go into a secondhand shop and found the whole beautiful illuminated manuscript there. And it would have been totally lost, except that he bought it. He very kindly scanned it and sent it to me so I could include some of that, translate some of that on the book and, and include this book. But similarly, Rangin, Rangin's uh, Sadat Yarkhan Rangin, uh, late 18th, early 19th century poet, was very popular in his time, very famous and popular in his time. But he He's Rekhta. Now the Rekhti has come back into print after my work and the work of a few others. But the Rekhta is still out of print. Rangin's Rekhta is still out of print. I got it from various places, some from Pakistan, from the British Library here and there. But it's still not back in print. Um, these poets, because they wrote about, I think, because they wrote openly about uh, erotic engagements, both men, male-female, female-female and male-male, they wrote about all. <laughs> Uh, they came under a cloud in the second half of the 19th century. They were labeled as obscene and much of their work has disappeared. Insha, because he was a major writer in other fields, he's he's said to have written the first uh, short story in Hindi and so on. So he has remained somewhere, but basically they have really been downgraded in the canon. Uh, Rangin has almost completely disappeared and so on. So, So, I mean, and this is of course an argument that I think you have also made elsewhere, like the sanitization of the canon itself. But when your book started coming out, especially I'm thinking of Queering India, Same-Sex Love in India, like there was that economic uh, sort of uh, boom, you know, in publishing. Uh, did your books in particular face any kind of censorship for the kind of, uh, you know, the kinds of stories, the kinds of uh, words that were being used? Uh, or do you think like a Penguin, because it was sort of catering to perhaps a more English educated audience. It was also a liberal audience. And so that was not a problem. No, there's never been any censorship of any kind, not just Penguin. My books have been published by our books. Were the, first, uh, the first edition in India was Palgrave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Macmillan and then Penguin was the next updated edition. Right at the beginning, when we first tried to publish Same-Sex Love in India, the publishers were a bit scared. And they, because a lot of it was religious literature, a lot of it was extracts from uh, what you could call devotional literature. And so they were a bit scared. And they wanted, one publisher suggested that, Indian publisher, that we should have on the left side page the original language text and on the right side page the translation so that it is clear that we are not making anything up it's all the original text 
but that would have made it completely unwieldy. So we couldn't do that. And of course, we gave the source so the reader can go and look it up. So it was first published in the US. And then after two, two, three, two years, it was published in India as well by Macmillan first and then later by Penguin. My later books have been published, for instance, by Translation of uh, Chocolate by Pandey Bechan Sharma Ugra, which was the first uh, the first book to create a public debate on homosexuality. So my translation of that was published, I think, 2000 early to the mid the mid first uh, decade of the 2000s and that was OUP so uh, now several uh, publishers have now published my work the same-sex marriage book was published in 2005 long before there was any debate on marriage equality in India so it was early but no so there hasn't been any since uh, and before I go to the marriage equality question I'm just curious to know why do you think this boom happened because I mean you published so many books around this period of time uh, there were other anthologies like Yarana. I just interviewed Ashwini Sukhankar's uh, for her Facing the Mirror. Then I think Gautam Bhan, who interviewed you, uh, also came up with an anthology much later with Arvind Narain. So what was it about the Indian sort of slip, sort of space? Was it the economic liberalization of like late 80s? Was it that or something else was happening? Like where pe- people curious to know more about same-sex love? I'm sure that played a role. India also is a democracy. And so it is possible to publish in a way that it isn't possible in some other countries. And in, and Indians travel, have been traveling. There's a huge boom in Indian traveling from the 90s onwards to now. So Indians are globe travel, global travelers, many are. And even though it's a small uh, group that travels, in terms of numbers, it's a very large number. So, uh, so it, when you're reading literature and books from all over the world, so obviously you have this uh, interest. Also, it, there's the movement. There's so many people coming out there's a demand for reading on various subjects including this subject so today for example publishers are very anxious to publish on anything which they think of as queer and uh, some of it and say with the result that some of the stuff published it's very uneven in quality it's not all equally good but uh, yeah but they're very eager to publish on this all all almost all publishers including in hindi i translated my novel memory of light into hindi as pariyoke beach and ram rajkamal published it um, so uh, rajkamal is actually now uh, uh, searched and looked for all their books which they consider to be queer which they hadn't thought of in that way to start with but now they pick them all out and they put them in a list so it is about marketing as when you feel that there is a readership and the readership is not just LGBT readership it's other people also who are interested in reading and you feel there is a readership there is a market and the publishers are going to produce it and yeah and I think the movement has had a lot to do with it the media has had a lot to do with it the media has been and then media overall is very supportive of any kind of a press group I think as a result of the independence movement and um, so the TV, the films, all of these things have made a difference so that it is now spoken about, talked about, it's on syllabi, it's discussed at universities, I've been asked to give talks at really remote little colleges in India. And so uh, so, so there's, a, there's a market and there's an interest, right? So that I think has been good. Yeah, I mean, uh, that reminds me, Delhi University now has a, a syllabus, like has a course called Interrogating Queerness. And I think your book is part of it, although... I think when it came out, there was a lot of uh, resistance from um, some people in the administration, again, because of the religious uh, components in that uh, unit. But I think I think know some colleagues who are teaching that uh, course. It's an elective paper. It's an elective paper. So some colleges choose to teach. You can choose to teach it or not. Uh, Yeah. 
but yeah. uh, but i think many teachers when i was teaching in in india in the 80s i taught uh, it was just the straightforward english literature syllabus but i taught so many things like for example as you like it my first uh, paper on this subject was about as you like it and i taught it from this point of view so nothing prevents you i have always argued that and i've demonstrated in my work both in this book same sex love in india and in sappho and the virgin mary that same sex sexuality is at the heart of the canon it's not at the margins it's at the heart of the literary canon uh, at least like it's for english and for the, for uh, in in literary canon and so you just can teach the regular regular literature you can just teach literature and bring this into the you don't even need a separate paper i think it's, you can have a separate paper but it's not necessary yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've actually taught in Interest College for Women for like over three years, and uh, we would uh, obviously teach texts which were very clearly queer, and not have them separately categorized as one. Uh, but of course, there is another politics to actually having a separate paper with with the name sort of queer. Um, and this actually brings me to that interview that I was referring to uh, in I think Wasafiri, where you talked about the kind of similarities between joint suicides by. Uh, lesbians and heterosexual uh, couples and if i'm not mistaken at that time this was perhaps the 80s and the 90s uh, the suicides i'm referring to uh, they were not very well sort of uh, they were covered in a very sensationalized way uh, by the media but things have changed uh, at least things have changed for gay and lesbian people uh, to some extent uh, more largely people from a certain class and caste but do you think given the fact that intercaste and interreligious marriages in india are still a taboo uh, do you think the conversations about same sex la- uh, marriage especially the legal sort of conversation is a bit premature or do you think that everything can happen at the same time like you know the sensitization that people opening up to same sex marriage especially given the role of bollywood and so many films and you know content coming up which are very sort of so called positive Well, there are three different points here. I would say first, why would one think that intercaste or interregion or interreligious marriage is more? You talk, you mean heterosexual marriage is more important than same-sex marriage? There's no reason why one should come first before the other. There's none. Second, you're, we're also would be assuming that these are separate compartments. They're not. Almost all the same-sex marriages that have occurred from 1980 onwards, almost all of them, most of them have been inter, so-called inter. world interjati intercast whatever you want to call it a lot of them have several of them have been interreligious as well uh, usually they are in the same region because people meet the people whom they know in the same region but uh, but they definitely interreligious there several of those so it's not watertight compartment and thirdly um, while heterosexual couples also commit joint suicide the difference is that if a heterosexual couple can manage to get married and uh, if they have jobs that they can become independent then they have the protection of the law they have all the rights which uh, they have all the rights which protect them right but as a same sex couple even if they have a religious marriage have no rights whatsoever and i can give you uh, recent examples without uh, quoting names uh, a person whose partner dies and then the partner's family comes and takes uh, before the partner dies they're very ill and takes them away makes all the medical decisions makes carries out the funeral and treats the partner as a roommate 
And that is really your status. You are a legal alien to the person. You have no kinship with them and you have no rights to make any decisions. Um, takes away all this, all this stuff and just considers this just a roommate. So we just take away everything. Right. Um, similarly, if it's a foreign, foreign, a non-Indian married to an Indian, if it's a man and a woman getting married, the very next day, the foreign partner has a right to apply for a OCI, Overseas Citizenship of India, and then to live in India forever, to work there, to have a bank account and everything. Whereas if it's a same-sex couple, even if, I can, another example, even if you have been together for 20, 30 years, the person has no rights at all, the foreign partner. Every six months, they have to leave the country and come back after one or two, uh, after some time. And they, and again, if they fall ill, you who are you exactly? You are nobody. You are just a friend, right? You don't have any rights. So it's a, it, there's a huge difference. Even though they both might be committing joint suicides, there's a huge difference in terms of the rights that you have. And that's why the legal marriage equality is so important. Yeah. There's a social battle you might have to keep fighting, but at least the legal legal rights you should have as a citizen, right? Mm-hmm. And this is something I think, like friends of and people whom I've talked to recently about, marriages and I think this is a major concern that what happens if someone dies or what happens if someone needs to go to the hospital who signs who takes care and so care work seems to be and after you know what happens after that is Mm -hmm. something that seems to be bothering a lot of uh, Mm -hmm. people who are in relationships or who want to be it's not just hypothetical. I know two actual cases in which this has come to a head and been a real major problem yeah so, uh, and it can be a problem for anyone. It will be, you know. I mean, of course, like I was more thinking more about, you know, like the narrative around uh, Love Jihad, for instance, and uh, law has always mostly not supported, especially like in cases such as this. I was thinking of the case of Hadia, which was uh, covered later, I think after a lot of uh, women's groups took it up, took up the challenge. And then, of course, finally, I mean, uh, Hadia found justice but it took sort of a long time uh so i was thinking like do you think that the law like as a as a space is something that one should put their faith in uh given the fact that the law can be very um i don't know what's the word like it may not always be with whom it should be so it often depends on whether you have the uh, proper lawyer whether uh, you have the money to pay the lawyer who is fighting your case, so on and so forth, and what religion, what caste you're coming from. So how do you, important do you think law is in the Indian context? Well, in any context, the law is not uh, is not going to solve all your problems like a magic wand. Obviously not. I mean, you still have to fight all kinds of social, political, economic, and so on battles. But the law is very important. Nevertheless, it's just like 377. Do you want to have a law that makes you into a criminal just because you're having a same-sex relationship? Obviously, it's important to get rid of that law before you can do anything else, right? So do you want to have a law that guarantees equal and non- non-discrimination in employment or marriage equality? Yes, you want to have those laws. Now, to actually implement those laws, yes, may be difficult. In the case of many uh, heterosexual couples, just getting to court is difficult. And then once you get to court, mostly the court will say, yes, you have a right to get married if the if you can show that there was no force and no compulsion. So when you come to court, you prove that that is the case. In the case of same-sex couples, right from the 90s onwards, the ones who managed to get to court, the court has 
courts have invariably said that they are two consenting adults. They have, they are not married, but they have a right to live together. Any number of courts have said that, right from the 90s onwards, uh, all over the country, lower level courts. So it's kind of obvious. You are two adults. You want to live together. So you have the right to do that. Now, whether it's easy to do that, whether you'll find a landlord to rent a place to you, what your families are doing, what the police might do, that's a different matter. But at least it's important that the law does protect uh, your rights, right? That the law is there. So yeah, the law is necessary, but not a sufficient and this is more of a maybe a slightly more abstract question but what do you think needs to happen for the social uh, scenario in India to be more sort of affirmative I know Bollywood has been making some pretty good movies recently I saw um, I can't remember this movie uh, which sort of uh, had a very good representation of uh, this mm. police officer sort of falling in love with this uh, guy. Uh, and it had a very nuanced approach to uh, this gay relationship. So it was also a marriage of convenience in that in that uh, film. Badhaido, yeah. Uh, I think it was Bad- yeah, Badhaido, right? Yeah. Uh, but overall, there has also been representation which are not that great. I was thinking of Chandigarh Kare Ashiki, where the trans uh, woman's representation was, I mean, flawed at se- several sort of respects. Uh, so what do you think uh, needs to happen. Can we just rely on media for that? Or do you think uh, there needs to, I know there are activist groups uh, who work very hard on these issues. There is suicide prevention groups, uh, but at the social level, do you feel the need for anything else to happen? Well, it is happening. It is happening. And the most important thing is to live your life fairly open, as openly as it is possible to do so. And that is what brings about the change and is bringing about the change. I mean, definitely the change is happening. The internet has played a huge role where young people can meet each other or any people of any age can meet each other through the internet and form relationships where earlier it was just hard to meet anyone uh, 30, 40 years ago. And um, and then people are telling, more and more people are telling their parents, telling their families, telling their neighbors. So you don't have to even have to tell them. You just live your life together. You live your life together. They see you and people see you and people understand uh, they, they may not even use any words but uh, so it and and all over the country people are doing that and of course things have changed a lot yes the films make a big difference I think Shubhangal Zyada Sabdhan I say often is the film I was waiting for all my life so yeah the uh, it's it's a it's not obviously one thing it's many things that happen and so you've named some of them but I think most important is also just people at all levels of society whether it's celebrities or whether it's ordinary people uh, just living their lives and that involves conversations with your family with your friends with your neighbors etc and over time and this is not going to happen overnight with families I mean I know so many cases including my own family so many families where over time gradually you see the families changing and it's not just your immediate family then your entire relative your community, everybody. So it changes over time. And that's uh, that's how it happens in any society. I don't think India is any different from any other society. And no society is, um, even the supposedly most advanced societies are really not entirely accepting. So it, it, it's all in the process of change, but it is definitely changing, I think. So you are like, you're optimistic that, you know, things will only improve from now on, given the fact that I mean, a lot has happened in the last couple of years in terms of just, I'm just talking about homosexuality per se. I'm not talking about uh, transgender rights because things have been happening for quite some time and it's been on and off. Uh, But when it came to homosexuality, there has been, I think media perhaps has been more positive, uh, you know, so there is clear hierarchy. But but from what I'm hearing, you are saying that family acceptance takes time, but it will eventually, you know, happen. Is that what you're saying? 
No, one can't predict for a billion, a billion plus people what will happen in every case, you know. So obviously, this is one can't generalize like that, and and one can't predict what will happen in any society. Things go back and forth and change and sideways and zigzag and whatever. So one doesn't, one can't predict. One can only say what one sees now. And what I see, I can't predict for the future. What I see now is yes, the things are changing, and uh, uh, um, it depends on the family, the community, the region, the the individual. It depends on so many factors so it won't be the same in every case but definitely it's very different from what it was 30 years ago at least people uh, are familiar with the concept they uh, they may, many people at least know somebody who is uh, gay or if they don't know somebody they have seen it on the media they've seen somebody on tv they've seen that they've heard of somebody at least 40 years ago many of them might say no we don't know anyone though they might have known someone but they didn't know that that they knew someone right so um, so in those sorts of ways definitely it's changing it's become uh, in films uh, not just bombay cinema other language cinemas too it's it's like present it doesn't even have to be the main subject but somebody could be a minor character even right on television right from the early 2000s there were there's this wonderful haryana serial haryanvi serial in which there were these two men who were just regular haryanvi speaking guys who were involved with each other i thought that was very called Mariada Lekin Kaptak, uh, which oh, is an interesting okay. title. And, uh, and, and that's just one example. There have been so many uh, TV serials in different languages that have had characters who are um, LGBT of some sort or the other one, something or the other. So it's become more part of sort of everyday conversation in not just in English, in other languages too. So, uh, you know, like you have Asudenda writing in uh, Telugu. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, oh, Kannada. So, um, People are writing in different languages. There are uh, uh, TV shows, there are podcasts in different languages, etc. So yeah, I think the internet is full of you. All you have to do, I think the internet has played a role that one cannot overestimate. I mean, you just have to Google in any language and you'll find information. So just getting information about groups, about other people, about individuals, about meeting other people, about just facts and so on. Uh, this you could not get right, 30, 40 years ago. Now you, you have to go to a library and really search and now you can get it so easily. Yeah. Now there may be misinformation too, but at least yeah, uh, absolutely, that, that would be true in even in the library. So. Yeah, yeah. And given the fact that you're so invested in history, I was wondering, do you see your work as being a kind of archival, like uh, something which is creating an archive of sort? I'm sure it's contributing. I'm sure it's contributing. So lots of work is done and lots of people write. And yeah, when we, we wrote that first book, Same Size Love, and yeah, I've, I've been trying to, my later work builds on that in terms of the Rekhti book, for example, or Chocolate. Uh, these are texts that I first discovered, some of them when doing Same Sex Love in India, and then later I translated more of it. So, you know, I'm right now I'm translating a set of Hindi fiction, uh, Hindi fiction on same sex uh, love from the whole of the 20th century right up to the present. So I'm translating uh, those stories. It will be a collection which will come out hopefully next year. So, um, yeah, we, we have, we are building, basically what we're doing is we're building uh, um, an archive, if you want to call it that, or just bringing uh, what is already there, but bringing it uh, to light. Like, for instance, Nirala had, in Same Sex Love in India, had uh, put this little extract from Nirala's Kuli Bhat. Now, it was a known, Nirala is a major poet, Hindi poet, and the book was known, but that little extract, which that that wonderful little uh, extract had not been really seen in those terms very much or written about in those terms. Most people didn't know about it, right? So it's about bringing out what is already there. It's not like they're inventing anything, but we're bringing out what is already whatever. We're bringing out what is already there, right? Yeah. It's also, I mean, I also see sort of an investment in the past, uh, investment in like producing knowledge that people can maybe share. 
uh, because it seems like not all, some of your books might be academic, but others are not just for academia. And that's one question that I'm very keen to understand. Like, what do you think is the relationship between uh, praxis and theory and all the relationship between academia and non-academia? Like, for instance, when uh, some of us do our work in academia, we often cannot make our work accessible, um, you know, to a public which is not necessarily familiar with the jargon. And yet it's so important to do that work, uh, especially here. I'm now in the U.S., and here there is so much of emphasis on public scholarship. Um, so what do you think pushes you to kind of do that kind of research, which you think is not necessarily only about academia, although it's clearly, clearly a product of uh, research and especially some of it archival research? Well, first I make I make an attempt, I don't know how successfully, but I think with some success, not to write in jargon. I do not do critical theory. And that really affects your career negatively in the US or maybe anywhere if you don't do critical theory in this period, in this age right now. But I don't care. That's not what I want to do. I want to write in a way that anyone who can read can understand. So I want to write for the general reader. That's the first choice. I mean, that's clear to me. I mean, if I wanted to do theory, I could do it, but I don't want to do it. That doesn't interest me. I'm not. I want to write in a way that is simple and accessible, the way we teach in order to, and I teach like that too, so that my students, the students can understand what you're talking about. And um, so my approach is literary and historical, not theoretical. Yes, so you're right. I'm looking at, I'm interested in bringing history to light and bringing the past to light. And so that's one thing. Secondly, I have published with academic presses, though even there without using any of the jargon. But I've also published with the general trade presses a lot. And I think more and more that's what I'm inclined to do. Um, so uh, just pricing even, you know, trade presses, the books tend to be much more affordable than academic books are just unaffordable even by libraries, let alone by these days. Yeah. So yeah, if you publish with a trade press, it's general nonfiction, and then uh, it could put off some people because you have footnotes and all of that. But if they don't want to read the footnotes, they can ignore it, and they can still just read. Same like my book on marriage loves, right? It's very readable by anyone. Yeah. So that's the second uh, choice. It's a matter of making a choice of whom, who is your reader? What, whom are you? Are you just trying to reach other scholars? And you do want scholars to read it. But do you also want to reach readers who are not scholars, who are not specialists in the field? But, you know, if that's important, then you make certain choices. To, yeah. So. I'm actually thinking of a lot of uh, writers like, say, Bell Hooks or Saidia Hartman, who write in a style which is ethnographic and uh, some of it is also anecdotal. Uh, but they also, especially Bell Hooks, I remember, uh, what is that famous piece where she talks about theory? Uh, as being a site of liberation, right? Uh, so I'm just trying to like wonder. So then unlike, let's say, some of these scholars, also US-based scholars, uh, where there's a, they have sort of found the possibility of a liberation in theory and try to redo the theory in a way that is perhaps more accessible, you know, for people, first-generation scholars, uh, Black scholars. So you think that is not something that can be done with theory, or at least from your perspective? All, all sorts of things can be done and whatever people find liberating that's great and they should do it so I'm not criticizing anyone for doing it it's just not what I want to do and also I'm not writing mainly for an American readership because uh, Bellux is American right so it's a different set it's a different uh, 
whole um, uh, space. Because I found that uh, when you write about India, apart from a few South Asian as Indian scholarly study scholars who really work here, most of the American public is not really interested in anything that's non-American. Like, let's face it. So, and if they are, China might be a more interest to them. In the UK, maybe there's more of an India connection. But otherwise, really, my readership is in India or Indians, wherever they may be. And uh, the majority of my readers. So that's the readership that I'm addressing. I have one last uh, question uh, for you. When you look at today's sort of uh, literary um, sort of scene, and there is so much of exciting work happening, um, and you also referred to quality uh, earlier, and you, I think you've said that a lot of things get published, and I have a feeling what I have a feeling I know what you're referring to. Uh, but overall, what do you make of the literary scene? right at this moment where so much of work is happening not just i'm not thinking of academia necessarily here i'm thinking of fiction non-fiction uh, so what do you make of the overall scene i think it's great there's a great blossoming of writing all kinds of writing travel writing poetry non-fiction memoir a lot of memoirs um and a lot of fiction as well so it's great it gives you a lot of choice right and it in a bookshop recently, I noticed that they, for the first time I saw an LGBT section, but also in other sections, in all the other sections, you found many of these books mixed in with the other readers, not only in the LGBT section, <laughs> which is just wonderful. I think that's really good. Have you been reading something or would you sort of recommend something that you have sort of seen recently or sorry, read, read recently? Um, what do you mean? Like, like any anthology, any like novel. I know I interviewed recently Sandeep Roy's um, yeah. book, uh, but that is an old, slightly older because it's 2016, I think. But I also interviewed Charles Mahajan, who writes a lot of children's uh, books. And there is, of course, Akhil Katyal, um, you know, and there is Hoshang Merchant also, who, whose book I think did not have a very good impression on you, as I understand, because I interviewed him recently. So categories like good literature, bad literature. Is it something that you think about when you pick up a book? Well, for my own reading, it's what gives me pleasure. That's all. That's the only criterion. It's what gives me pleasure. If it is just fiction or poetry. If it is non-fiction, then yes, speaking of Ashraf Merchant, having the facts right is very important. That's why his book was withdrawn by the publisher. And so that that's important if it's non-fiction but if it's fiction poetry then it's what gives me pleasure that i enjoy that's what i would read i still love saniti ramzo she was one of my the early writers yes. that i read i love vikram said um so um yeah um i like vasudhendra i read some of his book in translation um so um so I, w- I wouldn't say how well who are we to classify what's good and bad in the present. You're looking at your contemporaries. It's very hard to do that. So when it's all out there and then people will read what they enjoy, right? So and different people will enjoy different things. So what lasts and uh, becomes great literature, that only time will tell, right? You can't tell right now. So, yeah. And I think, of course, it's also personal uh, in some way. Some people read certain kinds of works, like poetry is something which appeals to them. And certain kinds of poetry uh, appeals more to uh, people. And I remember also Akhil Katyal and Aditya Angiras' sort of poetry uh, anthology, which also kind of uh, sort of explain why merit is a casteist concept, which is, of course, coming uh, also from a lot of critical caste theorists, uh, which is uh, a fascinating and interesting sort of field that is coming up. So thank you so much for the interview. Do you have any last thoughts? Uh, maybe 
what you're writing now is something like that you want to share uh right now i'm writing a book on shakespeare I'm, uh, as marjorie gaba wow. says shakespeare after all i've gone back to shakespeare i have written a lot of essays and journals on shakespeare over time and now i'm weaving them into an argument i'm writing some more and so there's that then i'm translating this uh, this hindi fiction on same sex desire for the, over the last like 120 years then i am my book on poems will, of poems will come out soon it's that broken rainbow and the novel has just gone to press it's called a slight angle uh, so that's it and then i'm going to translate more madhavi one more but that's after this these two projects after shakespeare then Wow! I mean, you are so prolific, <laughs> so amazing that you're doing, you are able to do so much and spend a use of your time uh, in such a I, I don't know what's the right word. Maybe productive is the right word. I hate the word, but I guess that's what you are doing. Um, thank you so much. I'll send you this uh, version maybe in a day or two, and then I can check with you if it's okay to go ahead with it. Yeah, and let me know if you want me to remove something. Uh, that, yes, you know, I'll do that. You. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Thank uh, you.